New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. We've all been taught that meditation is good for us and mindfulness practices should be done daily. Our guest today, Dr. Robert Thurman, challenges us when he suggests that meditation should not take us out of the world of suffering. He's learned this from his decades of the study of Tibetan Buddhism and has gained an understanding that the real challenge of the quest for wisdom and natural bliss is to remain infinitely interconnected with everything without attachment or aversion. Through his decades-long relationship with Buddhism and his friendship with the Dalai Lama, he's come to realize that Buddhism is not a religion, but is an engagement with real reality. The entire Buddhist tradition is built on a philosophical, scientific foundation. The Buddha was more a scientist than a religious teacher, and today we'll explore how we can tap into real reality by removing the veils of ignorance and make our life count with evolutionary skill with our guest, Dr. Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman is the retired professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies at Columbia University, as well as co-founder and president of Tibet House, which is dedicated to the service of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the people of Tibet. He's been a close friend of the Dalai Lama's for over 50 years and is a passionate activist for the rights of the Tibetan people. He's a skilled translator of Buddhist texts and inspiring writer of many popular Buddhist books, including Wisdom is Bliss, Four Friendly Fun Facts That Can Change Your Life. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can be of benefit to all life through the Buddhist healing arts and sciences of body, mind, and spirit with our guest, Dr. Robert Thurman. I'm speaking with Dr. Thurman from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Robert, may I call you Bob? Yes, please. Oh, great. By Thank all means. you. Thank you. Let's, I'd love to begin with um, the life of the prince uh, Siddhartha Gautama, 
who was um, lived in privilege and comfort, and he rejected that. So can you give us a brief thumbnail sketch of him and how he turned into an aesthetic and then even rejected that? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, well, he was um, a very, like a child prodigy. And um, he had a one misfortune, which is his mom passed away shortly after he was born. But luckily, his mom had a sister, same age, and very, very close to her, who loved her a lot and loved him a lot, who became his uh, foster mother, who Prajapati, who uh, who did a great job bringing him up. So he, some psychiatrists think he was traumatized by the mother passing, but it happened when he was so small, and then he immediately was attached to the sister. That I'm not sure that was a that was a marked thing. He was not neglected regularly. In other words, he was very very cherished. And then um, his father had a prophecy from a soothsayer that he would either conquer the world as a king, or he would conquer himself as a Buddha and become a fully enlightened being and help people in all countries. And the father, being himself a king, wanted a son to succeed him, so he kept him in a sort of pleasure palace in a very unrealistic situation. Talk about privilege, uh, you know, royal privilege, and the harem and girlfriends and eventually a beloved wife and so on. And um, had a beautiful son eventually. And all of the, and then he was expected to ascend to the throne at that point. And, um, but he, but the, thanks to, he had been married with his beloved wife, uh, Yashodara, her name, uh, for quite a while by that time, about 10 years, and they had this beautiful son. But she also sneaked him out. I mean, they don't usually put her as having a role in that because of being chauvinist, you know, in ancient India, male chauvinist. But I'm sure it was her who introduced him more to the realities and sneaked him out, and he saw a sick person, an old person, and a, and a corpse, and he met a wandering seeker, a kind of ascetic. So those, those experiences alerted him that his pleasure palace was not where everybody was and was not the real reality of things. And so when he saw those more great difficulties, he had an inspiration to try to seek, the, is that really the final reality? What can be done about that? So when his father said, now it's time for you to be king, he said, no thanks, dad. I'm going to go to the ashrams and to the great spiritual people and leaders of the world, and I'm going to discover the real nature of reality. And on that basis, I will help the people, but not as a, not as a political king and a commander-in-chief, more importantly, which the king has to be. So the father did what they do, locked him up. <laughs> then he escaped, and uh, he went off and spent six years seeking reality, and um, didn't quite make it, actually, just by the Tor tormenting himself and depriving himself and rigorous meditating, leaving the planet and going into realms seeming dark, nothingness like the realms and everything. Although he learned a lot doing that, but they still didn't give him the final answer. And so then finally, he sort of almost collapsed. And a young woman from a village thought he was, uh, you know, uh, a, a sick, sick, creature, like a Dalam almost type of creature, and fed him and nursed him back to health. And uh, then when he then he sat down and thought, well, 
that self-indulgence didn't do it, the self-mortification didn't do it. Let me, but I learned a lot on both sides. Let me now try to think it through. And he reached a kind of concentration, they say, where on one morning, after an all-night up thing, when he was stronger, he realized the deepest nature, he realized nirvana, the freedom from all suffering. And he realized that it was part of reality all along. It was not he went somewhere else to find it. He realized it was the actual real nature of what is here. And, um, and then he began his 45 years of teaching. And uh, he had such a powerful way of expressing himself. And, and people were so ready and so ripe, actually, to understand themselves, which was the main thing. It wasn't that he was teaching them a saving doctrine that by just clinging on to, they could then transfer their dependency to that. And that like a religious prophet does, you know, or a god. So the thing about the enlightenment is very importantly that he realized that Nirvana simultaneously was sitting where he was under a tree. And that is makes it very complicated. Non-duality is what's called non-duality. And it's like the only way I can explain it simply, it's not that complicated, but it's just that it's inconceivable. You can't describe it because it's paradoxical. But for example, when we look at our reflection in a mirror, normally, we see someone through a window and there they are, they look like us, except left, right, or reverse and so on. And then we do our, put on our face or shave or do whatever we do. And so we simultaneously see a something that we correct at the same time and we realize it's just a reflection in a mirror and we proceed accordingly with our own face over here you follow me yes and so we have two opposite perceptions one is that there's someone through a three-dimensional person in another room like our room who looks just like us but we know that's not the case by a previous experience and that leaves us with a kind of inference where we simultaneously know that we're perceiving it wrongly and we correct the misreception without thinking about it, without having to think about it. So that's as close as we can get to the idea that you see the same world, the same tree, the same people, the same planet, and yet you know that this is just freedom, nirvana, bliss, simultaneously. You correct it from being the way it used to be to being something simultaneously the way it used to be and yet completely different than the way it used to be. And that's the complexity, you know, of the paradoxical, the embrace of paradox of enlightenment and the full enlightenment as a Buddha. And then he then he was really happy all the time, no matter what seemed to be going on, which amazed people. They, they were attracted to that happiness. But then, and then he told them, but you can't just get it by hanging around me. You have it in yourself. And I can't explain it to you even, which is really lovely. I love that. It's like he didn't provide them with a dogma. He just said, I can't really explain it to you, but I can give you a method whereby you yourself can come to understand it. Because I'm not so different than you. I'm just like you. And I was like you, where I was just feeling trapped in a certain type of world that was inadequate to my, my, what I could do with it. And now I'm perfectly free in the midst of it. So that's where it was. Then he taught the great thing about India at the time was the authorities 
were not so strung out by the stress of survival and so on, as they were in the West and as they were in China during that time. Even in Persia, they were a little bit like that. And uh, India was advanced economically. So the the rulers uh, were sort of relaxed about manpower and woman, not so much about woman power, but about manpower. But, and they were basically more relaxed in general because they were wealthier. So therefore, when he started walking around and people realized by that he could, he could help them like a coach, not like a prophet, but like a coach, like a, like a teacher, he could help them with methods to realize themselves the good state that he was in rather than the bad state they had felt they were in. And he used to be in a huge movement emerged of people dropping out and becoming mendicants and spending their whole time learning, thinking about it, discussing it and meditating on it to really change their perception of life and being really happier and released. And there was a little bit of a bump, speed bump, where he, a speed bump where he um, uh, wanted to admit women, his ex-wife and his foster mother were determined to uh, join him. So he, you know, he wasn't cut short. Like sometimes in a more authoritarian society, a person like that who is having people drop out of work, out of the army, out of the household labor, um, they don't tolerate it. So they eliminate such a mystic, you know, what they call a mystic. But he was a very practical teacher, really. And he founded the beginning liberal arts universities in a way, but they started out very humbly of people just dropping out from the ordinary class society and the caste occupation. So that was that's what that's that was his uh, his career, you could say, in a nutshell. Great. I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and he's the author of Wisdom is Bliss: Four Friendly Fun Facts that can change your life. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and we're talking about Tibetan Buddhism and how it applies and meditation and mindfulness practices apply to our daily lives. And I want to talk about like meditation, the way you write about it and the way you understand it, Bob, is that it's not to take us out of the world of suffering and to go into some sort of disassociative state that Correct. we're just yes. 
there's something more important going on that that really leads to true yeah. happiness. Okay, well, let me explain that a little bit. You know, I don't want to come out against meditation at all, which I'm not. But what I am, I am trying to add a nuance here that those who say that all you need to do is meditate right off the bat, uh, I think are, are a little bit, it's a little bit misleading for, uh, to do that, say that, because it's like learning a language. You know, if you want to learn French, you, you, if you decide to just repeat some English words a lot <laughs> and meditate on ABC, you know, whatever. You're not going to learn French. First, you have to learn some French words. Like, kid, instead of cat, you say cha. Instead of me, I, you say je, etc. You know, am, you say sui. Yes, you say we. Oui. So you have to learn that. Then you can meditate and go we, 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 je, 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 cha, 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 or whatever, you know. In other words, meditating is like constantly focusing on something but if you don't learn something first then what all you can possibly focus on is where your mind already is at in a way just by shutting off in other words your learning and your thinking you're not going to be able to learn anything new you're just going to temporarily be free of thinking and that that in a way can be if you had a heart attack or something or if you're overstressed and are hypertense just not thinking about anything will calm you down and it might be bad temporarily, like a palliative for your health. So that's there is a use of it like that. That's fine. But the point is to really transform your life, to learn that you can be happy in any situation, takes learning first, that that's possible and that logically how you achieve it and that which things you need to focus on and so on. And then when you get that kind of lined up, then by just thinking it through, you won't also make the change. Then you do need the meditation. So you need to focus on, the, on what you understood so that it begins to replace the misunderstanding, if you follow me, at a deeper level than just one, one thought through, you know. But you need the thought through first to be able to focus that way. And the main thing, and let's make it very concrete, like the main thing is, that you know you're interconnected with other beings and 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 when you feel that you should be all yourself separate and you, and that you're the only one you're certain about is you and the others could all be hallucinations or something that's sort of unreal to you and that is unfortunately a little bit narcissistic way the ordinary person is your self-centered way because the one thing they're really sure is i'm me you know i'm here you know? And well, maybe you're there, or maybe it's a hallucination, or maybe it's just a Zoom, you know? <laughs> and so how do you shift to where you really empathize with the other person and you can see things from their perspective, put yourself in the other person's shoes? There's nothing special Buddhist about it. Well, to do that, first you have to learn that this sense of I'm the only one that's here is a mistake. And the other people feel the same way. They, they have, or they have a level where they feel I'm the one over there. And the Tibetans call it this mountain, that mountain. You know? And so you have to therefore see, oh, but they think the same thing. So obviously both of us are exaggerating our self-importance by habit. 
So once you get that idea, then you focus on how do I become more open to empathize with the with what I'm connected with. And in order to do that, you have to say, well, let me look at this sense of me being more important than everything else and see if I find something that's clearly, obviously, and evidently more important. So then you look into the self. And when you do, you don't really find anything solid, you know, but of course you're still looking and then that gets very complicated. That's a very powerful, that's the most powerful and important meditation. But what will happen is you will sort of see through the illusion of being more real than the other things in the world. And when you do, then you will begin to feel the reality of the other things the way you feel the reality of yourself. You sort of equalize yourself with others. And then when you meditate and try to hold that and constantly correct the, the habitual misperception of I'm the one, then, then you really will at some point become enlightened. <laughs> and you'll cheer up, in fact, right away because you'll take yourself less seriously even while you're just working on it. And that's already a big benefit. Bob, I remember when I first was introduced to meditation. Yes. By Tarthang Tolku Rinpoche, many, yes. many years and years ago. He was just uh, right. just newly out of Tibet at that time. Right, right. Barely I even speak. Oh, I knew him very well, yes. I, he could barely speak English. And, and yes. uh, But one of the things that he taught was uh, the meditation with our eyes slightly open. Oh, yeah, now, that's a, I've never really encountered that with any other meditative. That's traditional in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism and yoga. And it's for a very simple reason. If you have your eyes wide open, then we, we, we habitual humans tend to be very engaged with our visual field. So our consciousness is going to be focused at the root of interpreting what we're seeing. Do you know what I mean? It's automatically, you know, so we'll be sort of very stuck in the external. And if you completely close your eyes, you'll wander off a little bit into dream time. And, and if you're overstressed, you might even fall asleep. <laughs> so if you leave them half open, what you do, or lidded, let's say, looking down your nose, what it creates is a very boring visual field, sort of between the outside and the inside. So what it then makes it easier to do is to withdraw your point of awareness, your sort of sense of subjectivity, withdraw it from being the anchor of the visual field and move it down more toward the heart, actually, or away from the forehead, you know, sort of behind the eyes and sort of down more completely into being your, the way you are at your deeper gut level, you know, down toward the gut, but I would say toward the heart rather than the gut right away. And so that's very valuable immediately as a, as a kind of place to develop a balance of your subjectivity and to avoid the dangers of just being stuck in your visual field where you are or wandering off in sort of dream time, which can be a tendency for people who begin to learn to meditate. So it's, it's called one of the seven points of the Vairochana posture which is very normal in both Indian, ancient Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, not just particularly Tibetan. But, but Tartang was giving you authentic Buddhist teaching there in that way, which is very good. But other people feel it will be easy. Of course, I think it's perfectly legitimate 
for people teaching mindfulness who are starting with real beginners, with Americans who haven't had any exposure to any kind of spiritual practice, uh, and who therefore are very focused on their visual subjectivity, to then let them close their eyes. And even if they calm down in a dream time temporarily, that's, that's the least danger. The greater danger is to just always be stuck in the, being convinced of yourself in your visual field. And, and not going, being able to go into yourself at all. So I think they do that strategically. But I think when people get more advanced, they will learn, they will encounter in any translation for any Pali or Sanskrit text that the standard best thing is to, uh, is to just like, you know, we, a beginner, you can say, well, you can meditate in a chair, just cross your ankles and sit up straight and don't lean on the back of the chair. You know, that we, they will say that. And that makes it easier to start. But in the long run, you have to develop the ability to sit cross-legged in a balance, et cetera, because any chair posture will have new pains if you spend a little time in that posture. You know, and you have to always be wriggling around in it because of the way the body is, you know. So so that's the thing about that. That's very interesting that you had that. I love Tartan. I met him in 1964 in India before he even came to America. And um, he was, uh, he, had, he, he met some friends of mine in Delhi and he was all aglow and he came up to see me where I was staying with the Dalai Lama at that time. And, uh, and we developed, and then when he first came to America with Nazli, his, his wife, his Egyptian wife of the time, uh, he stayed in my guest room in my apartment in Cambridge. <laughs> he did. And, he, and I took him and introduced him to my professor at Harvard. Because at first he thought he might want to be in that area. But then he moved on to California, the land yes. of opportunity yes. after that, where you where you met him. Yes, exactly. exactly. That, was, that was six, seven years later. Right, right. It was in the early 70s, 1772. When, when he first came in, he first came in uh, 70, actually. That's where uh-huh. I was in Cambridge. Right. right. So there are two concepts that Buddhists talk about the, yeah. the four noble truths and the That's eightfold right. path. And That's you right. really That's right. go into this in detail in your book, which is yes. so beautifully done. And uh, when we talk about the noble four noble truths, it's about suffering and we don't want to hear that. Bob. We well, don't. That's only one part of it. Again, I'm adding something. The third noble truth of all the four, and I call them the friendly facts, actually. I shift from noble truth to friendly fact here and there because I want people to realize it's not just for Buddhists. It's just a, it's like a medical diagnosis of anyone who's having a hard time. And, the, and the, the basic, the most important one is the third one, actually, not the first one. And the third one is the freedom from suffering, the nirvana. And that's his discovery. You know, it, he didn't. It didn't take a Buddha to discover suffering. Just anybody who stubs their toe, they know about it. You know, so it doesn't need an enlightened person to discover suffering. So he's not putting us into suffering at all. He's noticing that we do suffer when we're unenlightened. So the, his statement of the first noble truth is sort of like Socrates, but it's less extreme than Socrates. Remember, Socrates said. The unexamined life is not worth living, he said, remember? But Buddha never said the suffering life will be not worth living. It's still worth living. 
because you can be get free from suffering. But so his real emphasis, and he clearly states in later commentaries, of these four friendly facts that as your friend I am mentioning to you, the important one that I, to my delight, discovered is that freedom from suffering is the real reality, and the others are less real. So please, that's my corrective. People about Buddhism think they're supposed to suffer, Buddhism says, but not at all. Buddhism's main thing is you don't have to suffer if you wake up. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman. He's the author of Wisdom is Bliss. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to the website tibethouse.us tibethouse.us, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and he's the author of Wisdom is Bliss. And we're talking about the four noble truths or facts. And the third one is um, that there's a way out of suffering. So tell us more about that third and fourth noble. Yeah, well, well, right. Well, the third one isn't just that there's a way out of it. I mean, if you think of it as a prognosis, you know, like the, the the prospect of the person who's seeking health and well-being. It's a good prognosis in that sense. It says, it says that there is a way out, but it's even more radical than that because he says the freedom from suffering is the one real thing. The, the suffering is because you're, you're mistaken about the nature of reality, so you're in an unreality that you think is real. You're making that mistake. The second one is the cause of that. That's that's because when we think it's just real to be a being that is separate from everything else in the universe, and therefore we're facing and confronted by the universe, and in the long run, the universe is going to get us, <laughs> and and actually it will if it's an if it's an opposite thing from us. Yes, some parts of it will like us and be friendly. There'll be nice environments, but sooner or later the place will blow up. There'll be an earthquake. There'll be a hurricane. The time will go by, our body will get sick, we will get old and die. Other people will cease to like us, etc. In other words, if everything else is different and we're separated, we're in a bad state. And if we think that's the real reality, we're therefore stuck in a bad state. That's what he's saying. But if we discover the true reality of the world, we will realize our complete interwoven interconnectedness with it. And it's not opposite to us. It's part of us. We are part of it. And actually, there's a way we have this wonderful human thing that is moving toward enlightenment where we can expand our sense of identification. You, Justine Willis-Toms, were deeply in love with your wonderful late husband, who I liked a lot. And when you were in your high moments, you identified with him completely. And you were like one being, the two of you, and vice versa. And similarly, we do that with our children. 
and people's going to do it with their team. And, you know, it can expand to, a, unfortunately, to a mob, but it also expands to a nation. It can expand to co-religionists or, or co-nationalists. It can expand to species, co-human, you know, where we feel we're one with all humans in a way. And in Buddhahood, it expands to all life. And even inanimate objects, like the whole planet, like Mother Earth, so and the gods, and all kinds of invisible beings, which is what happens when you're a Buddha. So, so that is the great thing. So the third noble truth, then, is not just the way to freedom from suffering, but it is the reality that freedom from suffering is somewhere within us already. And when we learn, when we bring it out, that inner wisdom that we have, which is the same as an inner bliss of well-being that is in every soul, in the core of every soul. And when we turn inward and find that, we realize it spreads everywhere over everything. And now, now the way to it then is the fourth noble truth, which you could say on a superficial level is the cause of, of realizing the third one. It's not the cause of the third one, freedom, because that freedom has always been here. It always will be here. It's what they call uncreated. It is the deep reality of the universe, sort of like, you know, dark matter and dark energy, you know, it's supposed to be 97% of the physical universe. So this is clear matter and clear energy, transparent matter, transparent energy, and it's 100% of the universe and always has been. And all the differentiation in it are just the play of this infinite energy. And when one knows that and identifies with the infinite energy, that's when one becomes a happy, engaged participant in the play, rather than a prisoner of the play or a prisoner of some act, some some events and actualities that one can't escape from, something like that. So, so that's the. But of course, that final final goal of the third reality, that being one with reality itself, is inexpressible, but it is experienceable. But you can't then explain it. So therefore, Buddhism is not a dogmatic religion, where it says this or that is the thing, is so is such and such. It's just a doctor's prognosis. You too can be free of suffering if you learn the nature of reality, not by believing something, which would be the religious thing, not by depending on some god, not even by depending on Buddha, but depending on your own intelligence, common sense and focused attention, you can discover it because I did. I was a prince, I was a brat, I was uh, like a, a spoiled crown prince and I went through hard times and then I had to counteract that sort of to balance it and then now I got it. And now I really am happy wherever I am, whatever happens, forever. And you can be too. Well, Bob, I wanted to ask you, in our in Western culture, we're yeah. very materialistic. I mean, we we really look yes. at the material reality and think yes. that is reality. And then there's something I discovered some time ago, uh, and that was in quantum physics, um, the physicist Max Planck. Uh, suggested that no, 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 materialism is not the fundamental thing in reality. All of them, yes. Consciousness. And you can't get around consciousness. You can't get behind consciousness. There's no edge to it. It's it's 
all pervasive. Yeah. And so how does that dovetail with the Tibetan uh, thought of um, that real reality? Well, it's, it's the Indian and Tibetan. And, uh, well, it dovetails very well in the sense that the quantum uh, disillusionment with the indissoluble sort of atomic solidity of material reality by analyzing it in ever, ever finer ways and ever more probing and more penetrating ways, they then realize that everything dissolves under analysis. And there's just like there's no absolute subjectivity of yourself. There's no absolute objectivity. Your subjectivity is interrelated with various kinds of objectivities. But if you try to go to find the one solid thing that you can absolutely depend upon, you won't find anything which doesn't mean you can't depend on swimming. It's sort of like a surfer. If a surfer hesitated on the crest of the wave and said, I'm not going to go far until I can grab hold of the essence of the wave and connect it to the essence of my surfboard and the essence of my body and the essence of my mind, obviously they'd be thrown by the wave into the, into the gravel. So the surfer can't control anything in either direction, but they can learn to fit in and sort of follow the flow of it and then have a great ride and, you know, get a gold medal ultimately. <laughs> even, even if they, you know, you know, a nice Hawaiian a surfer got a gold medal. And so, and so that's sort of what the Westerners were constantly thinking since Greece, ancient Greece, that they were in a solid world that they could control by some sort of way of developing a theory that would correspond to it, a kind of dogma. And, and this is really a more, not just a Western problem, it's a human problem. We tend to be obedient. We are taught and we are actually frightened into and terrorized even into following authority. And when authority tells us matter is all there is, okay, we'll do that. When authority tells us God is all there is, okay, we'll do that. And which God? Oh, the one that talks through the book I have. Oh, great. Well, we'll do whatever you say, high priest. Or the king says, you've got to fight in my battle, but God will take care of you after you die. So all these very actually unsensible things we're taught and we're scared and we follow it. And Buddha was the opposite. He said, nothing that you're taught will help you that much. But there, there is the method of helping you learn how to use your own intelligence and figure things out. And you're able to do that. And you can educate yourself to understand your real reality, which is this freedom. And that will make you free from having to obey this or obey that. And instead, you will deal sensitively with every situation you're in. And you will feel happy as a bee buzzing around in a field of bliss. And and then people felt that Buddha himself had become like that. So by setting that example, people then we're encouraged to turn into themselves and look at themselves and meditate. No, I'm not against meditating, but first learn, become critical, use their wisdom, and then arm that wisdom when it's, fun when it's flowing, functioning, and turn it against the ignorance, and it can really replace the ignorance. And, you know, that's why I say friendly fact. You see, Buddha used the term for noble in his society at the time, because they expected noble people to have noblesse oblige and care for those who are under their care, who depended on them. And that's so noble had a good connotation. 
but it also inevitably has a kind of connotation of someone who's above you, who's better than you. And you're, it, again, it fits with the old obedience habit that we have, you know, follow the leader and follow the dogma, you know, and, and call it a truth. And then it's something you're supposed to believe, you know, but it's not that. It's a fact. And you're supposed to try to discover it. And you're encouraged that you can and given a curriculum whereby you can develop yourself to do it, which strongly does include meditation. But prior to that, it's, it's learning, thinking, and then meditating. That has to, It's a process of three-step process, all of which is there to develop the wisdom, which is that you actually know what is real. You know, I was always told when I was a kid, and I hated it, by two types of people, the, the, the priests, you know, the, the ministers, and then the scientists in the classroom. And they both said, you cannot understand the world. No, no, no. The, the minister said, you can't understand. Only God understands. So you have to be content to be ignorant and just believe what you're told. And I said, well, why are you telling me that? Since you're also ignorant, why should I believe you? You know? And, and besides which, God, I didn't hear it from God directly. Someone like you but interpreted for me. And you say that God is even beyond language and beyond everything. So I don't like being told that. I'm going to try to figure it out myself. And then I went to the scientists and they said, oh, no, no, well, yeah, you, you know, God is no help. But I agree. But also you can't understand everything. All you can do is analyze this frog and its genes and its biology. Actually, they didn't have genes so much in those days. But, you know, you can analyze this, this, this thing over here or the motion of that pendulum. Or, do you know what I mean? You can analyze something very, very strongly. But you won't understand all reality, no. The more you know, the more you won't know. And I didn't like any of that. Socrates used to say he knew nothing. He was not the wisest man in Greece, although the oracle said he was. And he used to say that. But that's because he knew that if he said, I know everything and here it is, they would just either reject it as unrealistic or they would make it a dogma and become Socrates fanatics. And neither one he knew would be useful to them. So he said that because he wanted them to examine what they think they know. And then they begin to, and Buddha taught the same way. And then they would realize, oh, they're exaggerating their certainty about what they think they know. And actually things are a little more uncertain. And then they'd open their mind to developing critical insight and critical wisdom. So that's a way to find freedom. And that's what he wanted them to do. You can't force someone to be free. That, that's the opposite, you know. They, they only can free themselves. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line there. Okay? Yes, I'm here, I'm, I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and he's the author of Wisdom is Bliss. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you.
I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and we're talking about <laughs> the <laughs> real reality. And, right. you know, uh, in your book and all your teachings, you talk about the eightfold path. And we won't have time to go into all the increments of that path, but I'd like to speak of one uh, for sure that that I'd like to to talk about, and that's speech, like a realistic speech or listening and discerning truth. Because right now in the world today, this seems to be really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what can you share with us about well, right speech? realistic speech is speech that is kind of self-aware about speech, that speech is always imperfect. It is always a caveat that there's another dimension to whatever it is. It's like the kind of speech of a person who speaks like a fanatic, you know, like I only know the truth. It's my truth. That's the truth. Do you know what I mean? That is actually false speech because speech cannot encompass the truth of the world. You you can make a relatively true proposition, but there'll always be a counter proposition and another aspect and another point of view. So within relative truth, it doesn't mean that things are not more true than other things. And therefore, but their truth of them is always within a context. And in a different context, they might be there might be another aspect to it, and that truth would be imperfect and and not complete. If you follow me, so the speech that is aware of that, and therefore there is a speech that is seeking through interacting with the, the larger mind of the other beings, as well as yourself, that is seeking more truth, more reality. That is not trying to pretend to encapture it. If you follow me with the latest theory or something like that. And what's great about that scientific speech, actually, in the theory of science, they made a commitment way back, which they don't, they're not able to completely follow, unfortunately, but with their material dogma, materialist dogma. But nevertheless, they made a commitment that theory will always be trumped by experience. You know, experiment, we will find our theory will be a hypothesis based on what we've experienced and experimented and experienced in the past, accounting for what it was like. But then we're open to falsifying that when we have more experience and more data. And that is true good speech, that scientific procedure. And therefore, when they say there's no mind, the ultimate reality is nothingness, and that's where you go when you die, and you don't have a mind, you're just a biological robot. They are being dogmatic and not truly scientific. And they're acting like there's a law of nature that they know the law and they own the law, rather than that's a theory, that's a hypothesis, and it's useful in a, some context, but actually may not be the whole picture. You know? And so, so liberating speech is speech that is looking for truth and not looking to capture you or the person speaking or even truth, because Buddha set that tone. Uh, the original the enlightened in this era he's not the only enlightened there's many enlightened but he's the one we know about in this era uh, who started off a kind of process and he said i know everything but if you when you know everything you realize you can't express it so someone else can't just take something you say and they have a handle on everything they can't but you can give them a method because i can, i can i can encourage you they have the ability to understand it and that's so critical. And I'm so glad you focused on speech because they say that even though Buddha said, finally, you can't express reality completely. Nevertheless, they said the most miraculous thing a Buddha does is speak. <laughs> and why? 
because through speech, we interact with each other. We enter another's mind when we speak and they listen, and they enter our mind when we listen to them. So it's a deep way of linking up with them, even as imperfect as it is, because every relationship has is not perfect because it's flowing, it's ongoing, it's continuing. And the base of infinite loving vital energy within which it happens may be ultimate, but anything that happens within it is only relative. So therefore imperfect. But within that, the fact that a person who became one with all reality and yet could give people, other people, a method of discovering their own oneness with all reality, that's the miracle of truth-seeking free speech, where really that's original free speech. <laughs> and then and then free listening is what accepts it to work on, but doesn't accept it to blindly hang on to and become fanatic about. Okay? So I, I, what I'm getting from what you're saying is that it, it's really a, a privilege for us to allow our deep listening to another. It, yes. It's it's really yes. beholden to us to try and open our our hearing and, and yes. to really receive another. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier in this conversation is that there's no disconnect between us and others and everything is is all right, well, right. And, and also and the person who is speaking to you has a privilege of being accepted some aspect that they're trying to convey in your mind and therefore they mustn't abuse that by being domineering by by being uh, by lying by being harsh by being uh, bearing false witness to you and, and alienating you from others and so forth in other words, there are these four what are called unrealistic habits of speech. It's like you know, like blasphemy. But but it's not blasphemy. It is it is being it, blasphemy. The parallel to blasphemy in the Buddhist uh, speech sort of uh, ethics is not to just misuse speech and speak meaninglessly. You know, just blab anything because you're engaging someone's mind in some useless, meaningless thing. Is the idea? If you follow me, it's not a matter of being of uh, being against some ultimate authority because the whole thing is there's no ultimate authority, but the one that is relatively ultimate to each of us is the authority of our own wisdom and our own intelligence. That's the key point that is to be made. And isn't that lovely that we, and that is the basis of all our education, our good education. And of course, therefore, bad speech is so dangerous. And what we have in America now in the world is we've had it for a century. Propaganda. We always had it, actually. There was Vedic propaganda. There was, you know, pagan Roman propaganda. There was church dogmatic propaganda. There was, you know, nationalist propaganda, tribal propaganda. There's always been propaganda, meaning speech used to dominate people and manipulate them. And, uh, and, uh, and that's very dangerous. And therefore, we are, however, we are subjected to it from youth, from a child in any particular society. And that's why to develop wisdom, we need to develop a critical intelligence that looks at, uses our common sense as to what we're being told, what we should do, what reality is, what's our purpose in life, and so on. And what Buddha insisted to us is that human form that we have achieved is our own evolutionary reward 
for having been a kind of being who was seeking openness and seeking to know the world and seeking to be realistic with the world and with others and not just to like try for immediate satisfaction and just use others to eat them, something like a crocodile, you know, but, but really discover what it's all about. And so as once we have this human privilege to waste it, just getting and spending, eating and, and, and sleeping and whatever, you know, defecating is a real waste. And we should use it to find freedom and share that freedom that we discover with others in the form of blissful love. That's what that's our whole purpose in life. In other words. And actually, let me say, in writing this book, since I know our time is short, my whole purpose really is not just to give the education, although if someone tries to use it that way and uses it to educate themselves, I think they'll find it useful. But it's just really to cheer people up. Because one of the first, one of the few things one can do for others is to try to help them replace the default sense of reality that we have and realize that we've grown up being somewhat threatened. We've been threatened by the scientists who tell us we live in a nature red in tooth and claw, it's something to get us, and therefore we have to make a new one in a city with concrete and pipes and tubes and end up like the matrix, you know, in a, in a <laughs> test tube. And they tell us that, by, and frighten us, in other words, about this beautiful Garden of Eden we live in, which is the planet Earth. And then on the other side, too much of the religions, and even with some of the Buddhists, terrorize us and they say well it's all suffering and and the, and the theistic ones tell us well you're supposed to suffer now but if you suffer piously and believe in god then you'll be in heaven later and so obviously we're making you suffer because you're working in our mind you're slaving in our onward christian army or our jihad army or our buddhist army or our whatever all of the religions do that or our factories and or our bearing children in our society so we'll have more people to obey us and uh, as a woman, you know, and that's your job. And so we are brainwashed like that and propagandized like that, that, that our purpose in life is to obey whichever person frightened us and pretends that they have the keys to our happiness and freedom, which they will give us. So what the Buddha is doing is not propagating a religion, really, although it happened in history somewhat by people. But what he's really doing is he is saying, you have the keys to your own freedom yourself, but you must educate yourself. And this is, a, and there are many methods, and this is one. But that I that I encourage. But you pick whatever makes sense to you. That's the key, because you have the key yourself. And therefore, I want people to be cheered up that the default reality is good. It loves them right now. It wants them to be happy and free in every minute. The, the fault is it's good, and it leads you to embrace even face death with courage and equanimity and open-mindedness and that will be good for you but don't rush after it on the other hand but that will be good for you so that's my last thing cheer up is i want everybody to cheer up cheer up thank you so much robert <laughs> thank you bob for that wonderful cheerful news i've been speaking with dr robert thurman he's the author of wisdom is bliss four friendly fun facts that can change your life and if you want to know more about his work, go to the website, tibethouse.us, tibethouse.us, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3739.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.